From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. In his new article, in New Left Review titled, Turkey at the Crossroad, UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual writes, Ten years ago, Erdogan's Turkey was hailed in Washington as an example to the Muslim world, a free market, pro-American, Islamic democracy, with high growth rates, renowned cultural monuments, and beautiful beaches. Quote, a model partner, Obama affirmed in 2009, as he congratulated the leader of the Justice and Development Party, AKP. Today, with perhaps 50,000 oppositionists in jail, including scores of journalists, politicians, lawyers, and civil servants, Turkey is exporting radical Islamist mercenaries from its Syrian enclaves to Libya and Azerbaijan, clashing with France, Greece, Israel, and Cyprus over gas drilling rights in the eastern Mediterranean and imposing a brutal occupation regime on swaths of what was once the autonomous Kurdish zone of Rojava. Professor Twal notes that the shifts the regime has undergone requires grasping the limits of the so-called Turkish model and argues that Turkey's latest regional adventures are outcome of the multiple impasses, economic, national, and geopolitical, that have confronted the liberal Islamic Turkish model since the early 2010s. Jihan Twal is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, He's the author of Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism and the Fall of Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. His new book is called Caring for the Poor, Islamic and Christian Benevolence in a Liberal World. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir and started by talking about the liberal Islamic, quote, Turkish model its origins, and its characteristic. The first time the phrase Turkish model started to be widely used was actually before the period I'm covering. It's, it was mostly in reference to Central Asia after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So Turkey was being pushed as a model there, but that, that didn't have a very long shelf life. So the broader and more sustained usage started in the 2000s, And the idea was built, especially on the first phase, the first two terms of the AKP government, Justice and Development Party government, Western centers of power and influence, such as the New York Times, such as the Economist, but also American presidents were using this phrase to market the idea that Muslim-majority nations needed to follow Turkey. And in what regard? In its combination of a conservative Islamic culture with some liberal political structures, maybe not necessarily a lot of democracy, but some liberal democratic structures, but more importantly, a neoliberal, quote-unquote, free market policies. So they they were uh, touting Turkey's uh, horn primarily based on that, the idea that Turkey was able to combine what the West wanted to see in predominantly Muslim countries 
like a weak form of democracy, but a strong form of free market economics. And the AKP was able to combine that with conservative Islamic culture. So that was the idea. Before we look at the current structure of the Turkish regime, we should look at how the ruling bloc was formed under what you call the AKP's first formula for hegemony. Borrowing from Antonio Gramsci and his concept of passive revolution, you argue that the objective effect of Erdogan regime's hegemony was a double absorption of the radical energies of the Islamist revolt against the old ruling order. Through the mediation of the AKP, those energies would be absorbed first into domestic consumerism, glossed by patriarchal piety, and second into the political, economic, and military structures of the West. Can you talk about this strategy? Also, what impact did the 1979 Iranian Revolution, which resulted in Islamists in power, have on the path selected by the AKP in Turkey? That itself is a very long, complex uh, story. So let me try to break it down a little. So before the Iranian Revolution, Turkish Islamism had shaped up mostly under the leadership of conservative or really pious, yeah, more than conservative, strongly pious businessmen of the provinces and their alliance with conservative peasants, pious tradesmen and petty merchants, small merchants, again, of the provinces. So it was not a very urban movement. So what the Iranian revolution did was combine all of the above with an urban poor, pro-urban poor dynamic. The 1970s, more radical Islamic intellectuals started to first propose these ideas based on Said Qutb on the one hand and Ali Shariati on the other. This didn't have much of a mass space in the urban poor, but after the military intervention of 1980 decimated the lefts and the unions, the urban poor had no leadership especially the the more uh, Sunni sections of the urban poor, started to slowly shift to Islamism. So by the end of the 1990s, this new Islamism was a very large block, which had a left wing and a right wing. So a right right wing led by the businessmen and the left wing led by intellectuals who were maybe not very organically, but still conjuncturally supported by the urban poor. So that was Islamism at the end of the 1990s. And what happened afterwards was that the center-right, because of reasons like I won't go into right now, the center-right and the center-left collapsed at the end of the 1990s and right in the beginning of the 2000s. And the Western-led liberal, neoliberal transformation of Turkey suddenly had no leader or agent so the, the business wing of the Islamist party saw an opportunity there and they claimed the territory of the center right. And many secular business organizations and center right and center left intellectuals were very happy with this new force in town 
who were now willing to play the game instead of push for an Islamic revolution. So what happened in the 2000s was that Islamism was absorbed into uh, these uh, consumerist neoliberal uh, structures that were being imposed on Turkey. But whereas in the 1980s and 1990s, this was mostly experienced as an imposition by the IMF, now it was being shouldered by this broad coalition of Islamists. So it became a mass line. And the same thing can be said for the pro-NATO structures of Turkey, for which there was always some mass support. But now with the absorption of this Islamist bloc into Turkey's ruling structures, the the pro-NATO stance of Turkey for the first time became something mass supported with enthusiasm. You argue that every successful hegemonic appeal is also a polarization. After winning its first landslide in 2002, the AKP positioned itself with growing confidence against Turkey's uh, quote-unquote secular elites, the big bourgeoisie, the upper ranks of the military and the intelligence service. It's clear to you that the Erdoganists, as well as the Golanists, who were AKP's partners in the first hegemonic bloc, Their aim was not to dismantle the authoritarian militarist structures of the Turkish state, but to infiltrate and repopulate them. You add that unless the Kurdish question can be solved, uh, no government, Islamist, secular or liberal, will be able to demilitarize Turkey. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, I provided some of the reasons why some as center-left and center-right businessmen and intellectuals supported uh, the AKP's first phase in my previous answer. But what I didn't cover was its uh, stance against the military, at least in appearance. So after the anti-leftist military intervention of 1980, there was an anti-Islamist military intervention in 1997. And actually it was partially as a response to that that the right wing of the Islamist movement sort of repositioned itself and claimed center-right territory. But they also said, we're not going to push for an Islamic revolution, so we promise everybody that, but we were not happy with this military intervention. And well, they didn't promise this openly, but in between the lines, they were promising they would erode the military's power. And a lot of center-left and center-right intellectuals, as well as some influential Marxists, so some voices, especially the more intellectual voices within the radical left, supported the AKP because of its promises of demilitarization. And in the late 2000s, around 2007, 2008, the AKP actually explicitly started to say, we are against military tutelage. And they were uh, deriving this uh, slogan or this phrasing, you know, military tutelage from mostly liberal and left-wing intellectuals. But they fought the military mostly on the military's ideological terrain. So they did not actually demilitarize Turkey they weeded out the generals and the officers 
who were important to the anti-Islamist coup and who further threatened anti-Islamist action. And in the beginning, it appeared that the AKP was making some concessions to the Kurds. And there were, there were actually uh, several concessions. But in the larger scheme of things, they did not really change the ethnic structure of the state. And because of that, they kept on relying on the military to retain that ethnic uh, structure, which was mostly defined and shaped against the Kurds and increasingly more after the 1980 against the armed uh, Kurdish movement. So in that regard, the AKP reinforced Turkey's existing militaristic structures, even though it didn't do so explicitly. So it was doing these, but for several reasons, the liberal and leftist intellectuals, many of them, I shouldn't say all, not all of the left, almost all of liberal intellectuals, and an important section, even if a minority section within the left intelligentsia supported AKP because of this appearance of demilitarization. Jihan, in your article, you underscore the importance of the military, both domestically and in Turkish foreign relations. You note that its significance was reinforced under the U.S. hegemony during the Cold War, when Washington built Turkey into a frontline NATO bulwark against the Soviet Union. And the U.S. reciprocated by turning a blind eye to operations that trampled on, as you say, every democratic norm. While throughout the 1990s, Turkey's crisis-ridden economy received privileged treatment from the IMF, what do we need to know about the impact of this arrangement on the political developments in Turkey? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think this is very important. It's important to emphasize what I'm saying in this part of the article to correct for some very important and damaging misconceptions regarding Turkey. And I'm not saying this is a, simply a foreigner's or Western misconception. This misconception is very widespread in Turkish academia, in Turkish intellectual circles. And the misconception is that Turkey has this militaristic culture and that is why the military is strong. So it's like sort of a circular argument and a circular assumption. And it is partially true. Yeah, the military has been very important for centuries in the Ottoman Empire, before that in the Seljukian Empire. That is true, that there is something in the culture that favors some militarism. But what that overemphasis on history and culture misses is the 20th century and the Cold War and the global fight against communism, which not only strengthened but refashioned this militarism. So we can't see this militarism as something uniquely Turkish because it's not very different from, let's say, Brazilian militarism. Brazilian militarism doesn't happen only because of Brazilian culture. And this militarism is so widespread in the 20th century that we can't ignore the global making of it. And we can't reduce it because of the same reason to each country's own culture. So American hegemony throughout the Cold War and even after that, 
because of anti-Islamic worries, uh, Islamophobia, supported this militarization and changed its nature, really. So the, the militarism has gone hand in hand with the capitalist development of Turkey. It's not just a reflection of Turkish culture. And if Turkish culture is playing any role, it's mostly secondary. Going forward a little bit, since the early 2010s, multiple impasses, as you identify them, economic, uh, domestic, geopolitical, have confronted the liberal Islamic, quote-unquote, Turkish model. You named the troubled economy as well as the double upheavals of the Arab Spring and the Kurdish uprising as the main factors that combined to stall AKP's quote-unquote passive revolution, the strategy of double absorption pursued by AKP. So let's start with the economy. The AKP entered office in 2002 after the collapse of, as you call it, quote-unquote, pure neoliberalism of the 1990s, which had left the traditional parties severely discredited. In your view, a key aspect of Mr. Erdogan's hegemony was the promise to resolve Turkey's long-standing economic problems and to share its wealth among broader sectors. In their first years in office, the AKP implemented what you call the uh, quote-unquote post-Washington consensus reforms. This involved the encouragement of household debt. Tell us more about these economic policies and their consequences for different classes and social groups in Turkey. Yes, uh, of course, like every concept and every label is uh, somewhat a simplification of very complex uh, processes. So when I talk about pure neoliberalism, like Washington consensus neoliberalism in the 1980s and 1990s versus a more complex Keynesian-influenced post-Washington consensus neoliberalism of the 2000s, that mostly has to do with neoliberalism's stance against poorer sectors of society. So neoliberalism was never pure when it came to its uh, support for business monopolies and business organization, but it was sort of pure in its attack against all kinds of benefits to poor lower middle class people. So when you look at Turkey, free AKP Turkey in the 1980s and 1990s, The common characteristic of um, almost any party that has ruled in these two decades is its attempt to disorganize labor, cut welfare benefits, and basically impoverish the poorer sectors of society. So what changes in the post-Washington consensus is that neoliberalism remains anti-union and anti-organized labor. It integrates a lot of welfare mechanisms. And the overall welfare map is really, really, really complex, actually. So there are targeted welfare mechanisms in health and less so in education in Turkey. So lots of health reforms that benefit the poor. And as importantly, lots of debt, consumer debt and household debt that kind of makes up for the lost wages of mm-hmm. as labor. So yes. the poor can no longer expect uh, to live materially satisfactory lives based on their wages. So after the attack on organized labor, that is no longer possible. So what, what the AKP changes is not that part of the picture. So they remain anti-union, 
at least in the 2000s, and they keep attacking higher wages. But unlike previous neoliberal governments, they support certain sections of the poor through health policies, as well as consumer and household debt, and increasingly mortgages. And housing for certain groups, as you mentioned exactly. in your article. Yes. No, that, that's, uh, that's another component, which is very important. And actually, that, that takes us into the 2010s. It does start in the 2000s, but it's more important in understanding the later AKP and its um, move away from neoliberalism. Because what the AKP does in terms of public housing is different from this uh, support of mortgages and consumer debt in the sense that the state starts to act as an investor in housing. So that, that's a pretty non-neoliberal, I won't say necessarily anti-neoliberal, but it's you know, typical Keynesianism and developmentalism for the state to step in and provide housing to the poor as well as non-poor supporters of the AKP. So we see that increasingly so in the 2010s, the AKP starts to move away from neoliberalism or some aspects of it this private credit built on leverage finance became a serious issue in, in Turkey, didn't it? Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, yes, well, it is, it is pretty serious and uh, it, it changed. I mean, it's, uh, nature changed at every turn of the AKP. There's a 2008 global financial meltdown, which people were expecting to hit Turkey and other emergent markets pretty bad. But that didn't happen. You know, after 2008, we see actually some fluctuations, but then increasing dynamism in countries like Brazil, India, China, South Africa, so on. So all of these other emergent markets and Turkey benefited for about five years. Why did they? Because hmm. especially what we call hot cash, not tech-heavy capital or anything like that, but if finance capital and hot cash escaped Western centers and they flooded these emergent markets. So you see a very small dip in the growth rates in Turkey around 2008, but the economy quickly picks up and keeps growing quite robustly up until 2013, as long as this hot cash escapes the West. And to be clear, this yeah. uh, flight of capital from the US and EU, European Union, had a lot to do with near zero interest rates in these entities. As you mentioned in your article, exactly. yes. Turkey and BRIC countries, as you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, India and China, were beneficiaries of this flight of capital. Exactly. Yes. So this is not something, you know, the AKP devised or constructed, but they did benefit largely from this trend. What were the repercussions of this sort of dependent yeah. economic expansion? Yes, yes, this was very, very important because it created a temporary illusion. I'm not saying you know, everybody was deluded, but it did create a temporary illusion that this consumer-based, mortgage-based expansion could go on forever. Look, the West is suffering, but we're not. We're fine. This expansion will last forever. Nobody was, of course, that stupid, but it, it, it was a shared feeling of you know, optimism. 
You write in 2013, Bernanke's announcement that the Federal Reserve would quote-unquote taper quantitative easing, it actually sent these capital flows in reverse, the ones you mentioned, spelling the beginning of the end for the Turkish so-called economic miracle. But somehow, even though Brazil and Russia plunged into deep recession in 2014, the Erdogan regime succeeded in postponing the reckoning for a number of more years. How? What steps were taken by the government? Yes, this is also a very interesting period in the history of the AKP. I was saying, you know, Turkey was just benefiting from these uh, trends. It was not that creative in this uh, first phase of its uh, post-Washington consensus neoliberalism. But there was this growing trend, submerged certainly, but quietly growing trend of uh, state capitalism in Turkey in the 2000s. And as a response to 2013, the reversal of this hot cash inflow, the government just ratcheted up its state capitalism. So more sovereign wealth funds, more states investing in the economy, and slowly, even at least the Islamic organized labor started to be built up as a part of Turkey's state capitalism. So even though the overall economy remained dependent on finance, so I can't, I can't say Turkey didn't suffer after 2013. So that, that, that overall dependence uh, remained, but there was more and more state capitalist activity and it lessened the damage. It uh, cut back on the damage of this reversal, at least temporarily. Where did that capital come from? The state capitalism, where, where yes. there are many sources, it's, it's mostly a growing merger between the state and Islamic capitalists. And uh, this is, uh, of course, a, a serious step against the established big bourgeoisie. So uh, more and more uh, cooperation between Islamist businessmen and the state. Also, more and more influence of the Chinese model on Turkey and Chinese-influenced intellectuals, including some former Maoists and some other economists from other sectors of the radical left, they're trying to push the government in this state capitalist direction. They were also enjoying, and they still are, the capital from the Persian Gulf area. Of- yes, that, that's, that, that was another source of money. So even if, you know, Western capital started to uh, flee Turkey, there was capital from the Gulf. I mentioned the Chinese economic model as an influence, but there was also growing uh, ties with Chinese businesses and the Chinese state. So new trade routes started to be built. They didn't take over Western trade routes. So they're still in the minority. But all of these, you know, the sovereign wealth funds, state capitalism, Chinese-style planning, as well as funds from the Gulf and trade with China, all of these started to act as small cushions. That's UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual speaking with Shahram Aghamir about his recent new Left Review article titled Turkey at the Crossroad, in which he examines the shifts the AKP regime has undergone in the context of economic turbulence, domestic unrest, 
and a fractured regional order and reflects on the limits of liberal Islamic Turkish model. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Shifting gears here, you discussed this economic volatility that formed the backdrop to a geopolitical fracture, as you identify in your article, which is how you broadly describe the uh, second factor confronting the quote-unquote Turkish model and AKP's hegemonic bloc. The AKP's initial project was for an Islamizing Turkish-Sunni hegemony over the region that would be integrated into NATO and EU membership. But the Western wing of this strategy had already faltered after 2004 when accession to the EU stalled over the Turkish occupation of Northern Cyprus. Starting in 2011, when Turkish regime was confronted with the insurrections of the Arab Spring, which included the uprising of Syrian Kurds on its southern border. What was the AKP's policy with respect to these developments? And what were the ramifications of these policies? These economic problems were slowly starting to push Turkey away from even post-Washington consensus embedded neoliberalism and away from Western economic models. But as you are saying, what further complicated issues was the EU's growingly anti-Turkish stance. And it is true that this partially happened because of uh, the Turkish occupation of Northern Cyprus. But there, there were, you know, maybe 10, 15 factors, not least of which was growing racism and anti-immigrant attitudes in the EU itself. A Turkish insertion into the EU really scared, you know, everybody from the center left all the way to the radical right in the EU. And, you know, the democratic reform was stalling in Turkey and so on and so forth. So that there are many factors as to why the EU process stalled. And then, as as you just mentioned, the further complication of all of this was the Arab Spring. And in the beginning, if you again look at uh, what we started this whole conversation with, The Economist and the New York Times, they were ecstatic when the Arab Spring first started, especially when it came to Turkey. They were saying, aha, we had been talking abstractly about the Turkish model for so long, but now these countries, and primarily Egypt, Syria, and Tunisia, can implement what the AKP has been implementing in Turkey. Now is the opportunity, and it's very likely to happen. But it didn't. Of course, I mean that, that's a, a huge question why. But the AKP pushed for this diplomatically and peacefully for a year. So the hope was that the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and, and Nahta in uh, Tunisia would peacefully and democratically take their countries in the Turkish direction. But all of these attempts failed. They failed violently in Syria, less violently, but still violently in Egypt. And Tunisia is a mixed case, but still it's not moving in the Turkish 
direction. And after that, Turkey started to get more and more aggressive towards the region. So the architect of the first phase of the AKP, Ahmet Davutoğlu, who had built all of these quote-unquote strategic depth and zero problems with neighbors' policies, he was ultimately fired. He was ultimately marginalized and then ousted from the AKP. Turkey pursued a military intervention in Syria. And uh, of course, there were concerns about the, um, the Syrian Kurds. The AKP's government's mantra, as you said, had been zero problem with neighbors, but the shift in the geopolitical situation meant that Turkey had no neighbors with zero problems. Exactly. So turning to national or domestic factors affecting AKP's passive revolution, the double absorption that they discussed earlier, and its hegemonic bloc, it seems like we need to discuss the June 2013 Gezi protest, which erupted against the AKP's construction <laughs> frenzy plans to bulldoze a pretty little Istanbul park and turn it into an overblown, as you call it, Ottomanesque shopping mall. You characterize Gezi protests as being against urban pillaging, that is, the disposition that Mr. Erdogan and his AKP party had orchestrated. Can you briefly talk about these protests and why you think they were an important moment in AKP's rule in Turkey? Yeah, up until uh, these uh, protests, the AKP was able to foster the sense that it was supported by a majority in Turkey, but it had also neutralized most of the rest of the country, except perhaps the Kurds, even that wasn't very clear. And these protests ended that uh, sense, both domestically and abroad. And why did they happen? Why did they start? They did start against this urban pillaging. As I was pointing out, all of this urban construction and the construction frenzy in general was supported by broad sectors of society. A lot of people benefited from these But a lot of people lost their old homes, their old neighborhoods, and a lot of ecological damage was done to Turkey. All of that damage and losses were the initiating factor in the protests. But once they started, you know, after tens of thousands protested, the reason why it went from tens of thousands of people to millions of people was because everybody who wasn't happy with the AKP joined the protests. So not, not due to this urban pillaging, but due to its uh, patriarchal policies, due to its anti-Alevi policies, due to its anti-secular policies. So it, it became a mass uprising with uh, many, many grievances. So that was pretty unfortunate, of course, for the AKP in that The genie was out of the bottle. So this lie that people were either happy or at least content with the AKP was not right. A lot of people were not. So in that sense, it, it was unfortunate for the AKP. But these protests were fortunate for the AKP because they didn't lead to an alternative block. So all of these different grievances did not gel into a combined set of demands that an alternative bloc could push for. So this created the effect of further freezing 
the AK Party coalition or some aspects of it, uh, especially the coalition between the poor and the Islamic businessmen. But what the AKP lost after these protests was the liberal support of intellectuals and the liberal support of the secular businessmen and overall the westernizers in Turkey. On that point, Jihan, you also write about how the Gezi revolt catalyzed two further polarizations against the regime, the AKP regime. First, Gulen and the Gulenists, who were part of the ruling bloc and in partnership with AKP, decided to capitalize on Gezi's renewal of oppositional energies to their own benefit. The second one was what you call the short-lived unification of the Turkish-Kurdish left under the banner of the HTP party. Can you briefly talk about these two developments and how they affected the AKP's ability to govern and its hegemonic bloc? Yeah, but both are very important. Uh, so the Gulenists uh, are an Islamic uh, group in Turkey, which were not very influential at a mass level in the 1970s, but they were important as a part of the military. So it, it was the only Islamic a group or the ma- only major Islamic group that was able to organize in the military and the, in the civic bureaucracy. And unlike the Erdoganist Islamists and most other Islamic groups, they were always and they are still very uh, pro-Western in many senses of the term. They're pro-NATO, they are committed neoliberals, they are pro-Israel, It comes without saying when you're an Islamist, you're pro-Palestine, but that's not true of the Gulenists. So in that maybe they're Islamic, but not truly Islamist. And what changed after the 1997 military intervention against Islamists was that the intervention was so hardline secularist that it also targeted the Gulenists. So after that intervention, for the first time in their history, the Gulenists and the Islamists combined their forces. And of course, this aligns with all of the other developments I was mentioning about that era from the late 1990s to the late 2000s, when the right wing of the Islamists became, at least in appearance, pro-Western. But but that doesn't mean, you know, everything was fine between Gulenists and Erdoganists or Gulenists and Islamists. Because Erdogan remained anti-Israel, at least in appearance, because he had business links and many uh, logistical, diplomatic, military links with Israel. And he still has some of these. Uh, But in public, he was anti-Israel. And Gulen and Gulenists were always publicly pro-Israel. So that was always a problem between them. And as Erdogan's relations got more and more tense with Israel, Gulenists and Erdoganists had started to fight. And there were other fights too regarding how they would share the spoils of both neoliberalism and of overtaking the Turkish bureaucracy. So what happened during the Gezi upheaval was that the Gulenists mistakenly thought that they could use this crisis to uh, topple Erdogan and build a more purely westernist version of the 2000s AKP. So they started to push very aggressively in that direction in 2013. And in three years, they ultimately failed. The unification of Turkish and Kurdish lefts under the banner of the HDP, a Kurdish-affiliated party 
in the aftermath of the uh, Gezi protests included socialists, environmentalists, feminists, LGBTQ activists, and radical Kurds. In the parliamentary election of June 2015, the HDP garnered 13% of the vote in what you call a historic achievement for the radical left in face of the authoritarian, militaristic, Turkist structures that Erdoganism had left intact. Most importantly, the election robbed the AKP, Justice and Development Party, of a sufficient parliamentary majority to push through the transition to an executive presidency at which Mr. Erdogan had long aimed. The country experienced turbulent times between this election and the coup and the counter-coup in July 2016. What do we need to know about this period? It is true that Erdogan always wanted an executive presidency but he hoped to do this under democratic pretense. So in the beginning, he was not intending to get this aggressive. The Gezi upheaval and then the HDPs, the, the Kurdish uh, party's victory, made that democratic pretense impossible. Okay, so Erdogan could no longer behave as if he was a Democrat. So what happened in 2015? Well, as you pointed out, the, the failure of the Gezi revolt had a political consequence. And that was many people figured out you can't, you can't really uh, topple this growing dictatorship just by an upheaval. You need to play a little politics. So this pushed not just uh, leftists, but a lot of liberals to building this coalition with the Kurds. So the HDP and all of its predecessors, this is a actually a very long-lived political party, but it has had 10 or so different names because each time the courts closed it down. This uh, Kurdish political party had always had this ambition to be pan-ethnically democratic, not just the Kurdish Freedom Party, uh, but that never quite happened up until 2015. So after uh, liberals and leftists figured out, well, they couldn't just win on their own, they... Uh, joined the HDP. And more importantly, I mean, there were already many leftists, non-Kurdish leftists inside the HDP. What changed was a lot of, you know, ordinary voters figured out the same thing. So th this is not just a leadership and intellectual question. A lot of people who have strongly anti-Kurdish or at least, you know, ethnically Turkish nationalist feelings sided with the Kurds. And that's uh, what uh, took the HDP over the election barrier, which had been in place just to prevent the Kurdish movement from getting into the parliament. And what, what changed on the Kurdish uh, side of this equation was that many wings of the Kurdish movement back then and now are willing to cooperate and give some concession to Erdogan's executive presidential ambitions as long as he doesn't repress the Kurds. But around 2015, at least the majority of the Kurdish leaders of this party figured out this doesn't make any sense. You know, we need to fight this executive presidency. So the Kurdish movement was either cooperating or silent when it came to 
the AKP's gradual shift to dictatorship. But in 2015, when they got into the parliament, they said, no, you know, we're going to prevent this uh, slow building up of a dictatorial regime, no matter what the cost. And when that happened, Erdoganism got uh, ultimately fascistic. That was the moment of real regime change in Turkey. Of course, there are other important moments like 2010, 2013. So I, I mark all of those turning points in the article. But in 2015, the government started to go decisively in a fascistic direction in its backlash against the Kurds. You argue that uh, the upshot of 2015-2016 upheaval was a new polarization. The AKP's first hegemonic formula, liberal Islamism, was being replaced with its second formula, a novel Islamist, neo-imperialism, as you call it, polarized on the question of Kurdish upheaval and PKK insurgency. And that was essentially a rightward march by AKP. Can you talk about how the class composition and the makeup of the forces in the second formula is different from the first one? And what did that entail? I had mentioned that, you know, the, the Gulenists got more and more as self-confident and aggressive against the government after 2013, but they overplayed their hand as they prepared for a coup in 2016. And the, the Erdoganists in the government, they became aware of this coup plan and they forced the hand of the Gulenists to rush the coup. Uh, so the Gulenists attempted this coup in, in a quite unprepared manner. And as a reaction to that, the regime uh, started to do against one of its own wings, you know, the Gulenists, what it had been doing to the opposition all along. You know, the tens of thousands of people were targeted among the Gulenists. They were ousted from the civic and military bureaucracy. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. It was a horrible bloodbath within the regime, not even against, you know, anti-regime forces. This was happening within the regime, but th this had all sorts of unintended consequences mixed in with intended consequences. So this change, this 2016 change, combined with the anti-Kurdish change in all sorts of unexpected ways. So what happened was the Gulenists and the Erdoganists had combined their forces to purge the military of hardline secularists and they had to fill all of the empty positions with Gulenists. But after this 2016 coup, the Erdoganists did the reverse. So they, they started this even a heavier purge of Gulenists from both the civic bureaucracy and the military bureaucracy. But the purge was so heavy. Who are you going to fill these positions with? So the first uh, resort was all of the ousted hardline secularists. So all of those were invited back in. But this was not enough. They also had to get more and more far-right nationalists into all pockets of the bureaucracy, both military and civic. And that was not enough. They even had to resort to these ex-Maoists. So the, the regime essentially changed in many regards in terms of its cadres and its ideology. And as you were pointing out, the class composition also changed. So the secular big bourgeoisie 
which was on sort of neutral terms with the regime in some regards, in terms of more political questions, but was mostly pro-regime in the 2000s, became more and more marginalized and it became targeted by the regime, the secular big bourgeoisie. So instead of that, who are you going to rely on? Well, the, the Islamist businessmen and the conservative and pious merchants and petty merchants of the provinces and the shopkeepers and tradesmen, they remain central and they remain the core of the whole project, as well as the Sunni conservative urban poor. But in this phase, in this uh, quite fresh phase, so I, we, we can't be sure where it is going, but in these last five years, the regime started to rely more and more on organized labor. But uh, as opposed to the more entrenched organized labor, which is le- leftist or center-rightist, now the regime is building its own Islamic organized labor. And within the primary center-rightist trade union confederation in Turkey, there is a solid fascist wing. They have also been you know, propping up that fascist wing of entrenched organized labor. So it's kind of a corporatist approach to the question of labor. Yes. And of course, the irony of, of the whole thing is that I still can't say neoliberalism is over. So <laughs> all this dependence on hot cash, you know, all of this cooperation with global finance capital, all of this is still in place. But now there's a growing and fascistic state capitalism in the middle of all of this. In November 2015, Mr. Erdogan called a second election in de facto coalition with the um, far-right National Action Party, MHP, now running on the AKP's staunch record against Kurdish unrest. This time, the coalition gave Mr. Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party, AKP, the parliamentary majority that it had desired. You write that the MHP had been founded in 1969 by an officer serving in the Turkish branch of NATO's Operation Gladio after special training in the U.S. The party's ideology combines pan-Turkic ethno-nationalism with rabid anti-communism, lethally practiced by its quote-unquote youth organization, the Grey Wolves. The party reportedly has uh, deep links with organized crime and gray economy. Can you tell us more about this party and its convergence with the AKP? The Nationalist Action Party has been very important in uh, Turkish history in repressing the left and expanding organized crime and killing minorities. It has killed, you know, uh, thousands of people, including leftists, uh, Alevi minority and Kurdish People. It was very important in supporting the military's fight against the Kurds. They were pretty hostile to the AKP's first phase. They did perceive them as, you know, fellow right-wingers, but they found them too democratic and suspicious in their anti-militaristic appearance, even though, you know, I mean, they were smart enough to see that just as an appearance. But The the balance of forces completely changed in the course of the 2010s, and especially after 2015, as the governing party turned anti-Kurd, and as I was saying, after the 2016 coup attempt. And it should be mentioned 
the Nationalist Action Party affiliated officers and generals within the military were central to blocking the coup attempt. So they knew it was coming and they led the counter coup attempt against the Gulenists. This is the 2016 coup. Exactly, 2016 coup. A part of the military is under a strong Nationalist Action Party influence. I wouldn't say that for the entire military, but a part of it is. And that, that part was very active in blocking the coup because, you know, they saw where, where this was going, where the AKP was going. And that, that kind of locked in their relationship. So after that point, the AKP, which already had lots of social links, not necessarily always political and ideological, but lots of family links, uh, links in, in the base, in trade, etc. Lots of links with the Nationalist Action Party. After this point, it became more consciously ideological and political. And of course, this went hand in hand with the expansion of organized crime uh, you were pointing out and, and the gray economy. And of course, since it's gray and informal, we can't put an exact number on it, but a huge part of the Turkish economy relies on these mafiatic and organized crime links. Jihan, since the AKP regime reconstituted itself, as you say, after the 2016 coup, it has found strange bedfellows. Its strategies, as you mentioned, not include an Islamist former general who headed the paramilitary group Sadat and his mercenary force that played a significant role in Turkey's military intervention in Libya. Another one of these strange bedfellows is an ultra-secularist former Maoist veteran. There is also another economist who has been circulating ideas of a paradigm shift to a new economic program with a strong emphasis on building a technology-capturing national industrial base, which would to some extent imitate the Chinese model. He also comes from a Maoist background. What can you tell us about these people and how instrumental they may be in formulating the regime's policies? The regime has a very fluctuating relationship with these people. So, uh, for example, the founder of the paramilitary group Sadat has been, you know, in and out, in and out of the regime. As the same thing applies to um, a much more organized uh, person, this uh, former Maoist, uh, Dolu Perinçek. Well, I'm calling him an ex-Maoist or former Maoist, but occasionally he still claims being a Maoist. And he has links uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. And he's very organized within the intelligence forces in Turkey. All of these quite dark paramilitary formations became a part of the regime. So all of these, including the National Section Party too, they, they, they have been filling in the gap left by the Gulenists in one sense. Some of them are less dark in the sense that they are more public and we can, you know, so we can so, sort of track what they're doing from what they're writing here and there. So that, that applies to this economist, one of the primary advisors of Erdogan, who has been trying to push Turkey in a more uh, consistently uh, state capitalist and definitively anti-neoliberal direction. I, I called him uh, also a former Maoist in the article. That, that's not entirely correct. So he, he is from a, a more massive Turkish leftist movement, actually, that has its roots in Maoism, but it's uh, pretty distinctly third-worldist and uh, Turkish. So these influences are coming from all sorts of 
directions. And many similar people tried to infiltrate this regime or ha have an influence on it. But ever since, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, they have become more core parts of the regime. It seems like the political culture, meanwhile, has given rise to a paranoid conservative outlook, which is strong on conspiracy theories. For instance, there are regime journalists claiming that the U.S. military was training Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters in Kurdish PKK, as well as YPG camps in northern Syria, to be used against Erdogan regime. They also circulate this notion of a global interest rate conspiracy aimed at weakening the Turkish economy. What can you tell us about this absurd political culture and how widespread is it? Yeah, absurd is the word <laughs> to, to go about. It's surreal. <laughs> it is surreal, but unfortunately, it's very influential. Unlike Breitbart, which is sort of out there, and yeah, it did have an influence on the American regime for maybe three years or so, this kind of political culture has had an impact on Turkey for a very long time, but it was still, you know, something Turkish rulers were ashamed of. This sort of paranoia was produced internally, domestically, and almost always exclusively in Turkish. So they were embarrassed to voice any of these deep, deep conspiracy theories anywhere outside of Turkey. Now, all of this stuff is being published in English as well as Turkish. Especially if you look at, you know, pro-government newspapers, their English versions all have this stuff now. Now it's all out there and they're not embarrassed by it. And Trumpism has, of course, been a, a big boost that, that, you know, that Americans could do it meant we could do it. These kinds of conspiracy theories had believers in all uh, sections of Turkish society, but now this has openly, explicitly, publicly become official ideology. Jihan, in the second part of your article, referring to a <laughs> ruling power block that was reconstituted in 2016, you posed the question of how to characterize this novel political ideological formation. You say that Bonapartism does not sufficiently explain this regime. Instead, you argue that rather than try to fit the AKP into an existing definition, whether Islamo-Bonapartist, state capitalist, or neo-fascist, it may be more useful to examine the logic of its operations and its political practice. Can you briefly remind us of what is meant by Islamo-Bonapartism and neo-fascism in, in the Turkish context and explain to us why such categories are insufficient in characterizing the current Turkish regime? Thank you for that question. Well, when I'm saying they're insufficient, I'm not saying they're completely invalid because they do tell us something about the characteristics of the regime, but they're not sufficient by themselves. So let's start with Bonapartism. Bonapartism has been used widely to characterize the regime. Bonapartism is a regime where one man, a strong man rule, stands in between classes and the Bonaparte, the original Napoleon Bonaparte, and then his alleged nephew. These are all things to all people, to all classes. So they keep all classes happy by playing for one month to one class, for another month to another class. And Erdogan has certainly done this occasionally, 
But at the same time, he does have a solid base. He is coming from within a movement, unlike Napoleon Bonaparte or the nephew Bonaparte or the Bonapartist par excellence in our era, Trump. So Trump has no solid base, no solid organization, just like Napoleon Bonaparte. And this differentiates Erdogan from Bonapartist. Let's make it clear. When you say Donald Trump does not have a base. Trump is not coming from within a movement, does not have an ideology. He is now just using the already consolidated base and ideology of some far-right groups and partly the Republican Party, but he's not coming from that background. And everybody knows he's uh, completely pragmatic about this. Whereas Erdogan does have such pragmatic qualities, but he does have an ideology as well. And he is an offspring of this movement. He is not just a creator of the movement. He is the offspring of the movement. And in that regard, he is closer to interwar fascist leaders because he does have a very solid far-right ideology that is based on mass mobilization and definitively fighting certain groups. And you can't shake that ideology off of him. So in that regard, he is closer to interwar fascist leaders, but is way more pragmatic than them. So, you know, you can't simply call him a fascist either. And of course, as distinct from interwar fascisms, he is much more apt in playing the parliamentary democratic game. What would be the rallying points for neo-fascism in the case of Turkey? Well, primarily anti-Kurdism. Turkish nationalism fused with religion and primarily against the Kurds and secondarily against the left. And of course, the anti-left stance, just like actually in this case, uh, Trumpism, it's mostly an overblown fear because, I mean, there is no very solid organized left in Turkey. The who in 1980 mostly destroyed it. So they overplay their hands at this. Socialist threat is always around the corner, just like we heard in the Republican National Convention in 2020. They create this fear of the left, which always comes in handy. But the more realistic threat to the far right in Turkey is, of course, the Kurdish movement. And this new regime post-2015 2016 has shaped up mostly against uh, the Kurds. The regime does carry all of these traces from Bonapartism, neo-fascism, and state capitalism was another term I used. So it combines neoliberal tools with state capitalist tools, this heartland production, which uh, Steve Bannon and uh, Trump were also talking about in 2015 and 2016, but they didn't do it or couldn't do it. You know, Steve Bannon couldn't do it, Trump didn't do it. But in Turkey, there is production in the heartland and the AKP regime has registered that up even more so after the 2008 world financial crisis. So these state capitalist tools are being used, but it doesn't mean the regime is getting rid of neoliberalism. Earlier in our conversation, you discussed how, in its first phase in power, AKP and Erdoganism responded to the major impasses of the uh, quote-unquote Turkish model. 
those impasses being economic, geopolitical, and domestic opposition. Now let's examine how Erdoganism 2.0, as you call it, the post-2015-2016 regime has coped with these impasses. Starting with the economic crisis, what has been the regime's response? Well, we pointed out that after 2013, one of the major challenges was that the quantitative easing of Western power centers was slowly being reversed. And that caused a lot of problems for Turkey and similar emerging markets. And as I just pointed out, one response to this was increasing industrial production under the tutelage of the state. So it's not all state production, but even when it's private, it's heavily sponsored by the state. It's protected by the state. Uh, So definitely not uh, neoliberal at all. By itself, that doesn't resolve all issues uh, due to many reasons that we can talk about later. There are many technical difficulties here. Another was definitively ending the autonomy of the central bank. The autonomy of central banks is a very core component of neoliberalism. And in the 2010s, generally, the AKP regime basically suspended that. And they started to play with interest rates, especially every month, every year depending on the needs of the regime. And they could hold on to these balances up until 2018. But in 2018, the Fed, the American Central Bank, maybe not too suddenly because it was coming, but it definitively raised interest rates. And this whole window that had opened in 2008 and started to narrowed down after 2013, was definitively closed down in 2018. So a lot of cash, foreign cash, suddenly left Turkey. And the Turkish economy has never been the same ever since. And there were many quick adjustments as a response to this. The regime raised interest rates to crazy amounts, you know, over 20%, at one instance to 24% to reverse the the cash outflow. But when you do that, you hurt a lot of uh, small businesses and households. So it was total chaos and it has been total chaos ever since. So there are a lot of uh, quick adjustments here and there, and they save this month and that month, but overall, the economy has been in shambles ever 2018. Of course, the expected response to this is increasing industrial production, so decreasing Turkey's financial dependence. But this can't be done overnight or in a year. The regime has been having difficulty with this. And one very big part of this state capitalist resolution has been increasing arms production. Again, mostly private, I mean, apparently private, but these are all regime circles. So lots of uh, regime-connected private companies are producing drones, armored vehicles. So there's a lot of militarization of the economy. Given that state of economy, on May 29, Mr. Erdogan announced the construction of Canal Istanbul would commence at the end of June. This is a 28-mile canal that would link the Black Sea with the Sea of Marmara. It has an estimated cost of around $15 billion, and its stated purpose would be to ease 
shipping traffic and the risk of accidents in the Bosphorus. What is Mr. Erdogan hoping to accomplish with this project? Well, this is one of the mega projects of the regime, and it's economically important, it's ideologically important. He's trying to show to the world, to the Islamic world beyond Turkey and to his base in Turkey that he can essentially create a second Bosphorus. So there's a very strong performative uh, ideological element here too. He's as strong as Moses. Uh, (laughs) And the economic import is also, of course, very central. It's not, not just ideological and performative. This is going to be a huge trade route. I mean, that's the intention. And of course, this is going to further attract population to Istanbul and uh, urban planners, architects, environmentalists. They have been warning the regime, protesting against this canal for years. And this was one of the demands of the Gezi uprising, actually. This can't happen if it happens then it will be really an ecological disaster. It would be with multiple layers. I can see that. Yes, exactly. Shifting gears here, in terms of Syria, you write that on the Syrian-Kurdish border, Erdoganism has given the Turkish state's longstanding policy of armed domination, what you call a novel imperialist twist. Can you briefly talk about the Turkish state's approach to this area in Syria, as, as well as its approach to Idlib uh, province in Syria, and how viable are its objectives there? We had talked about how Davutoglu's zero problems and strategic depth outlooks had failed in the 2000s and right after the Arab Spring. So the hope was that a peaceful protest would bring about AKP-like regimes uh, throughout the region and especially in Syria And that quickly failed, and Davutoglu was marginalized. And in the beginning, the regime tried to influence Syria mostly through funding the fighters there and importing uh, jihadis from other parts of the Islamic world. But after a point, none of that worked. So this is where the neo-imperialism comes in. Turkey started to slowly occupy parts of northern Syria, starting, of course, with Kurdish regions, uh, regions of Kurdish autonomy. And the regime fear, the Turkish nationalist fear, was that this uh, dream and practice of autonomy would spread to Turkish Kurdistan, and which it uh, slowly, sometimes quickly. There were uprisings in Turkish Kurdistan and That's when, you know, the regime started to occupy parts of northern Syria. And most of this occupation actually reached its goal. So Kurdish autonomy was mostly appended in northern Syria. And the Turkish military presence is now continuous there. Now Turkey is officially a conqueror of northern Syria. And the regime... It tried to do something similar in Idlib, but th- that's not a Kurdish region. And the stakes are very different there. And there are other parties more interested in the game there. I'm not saying, you know, other parties are not interested in Syrian Kurdistan, but Idlib is too close to Hama, too much of a Muslim Brotherhood stronghold. There's an ocean of jihadis 
in Idlib, and many of them are not under Turkish control. And the Erdogan regime wants to control them. It wants to convince them that it is the most viable Islamic uh, regime in the whole world. But many jihadis won't buy that. They don't believe that. So even though they are benefiting from Turkish presence in the region, they are not 100% pro-Turkish. Many of them are ideologically anti-Turkish, actually. But they are now uh, you know, playing along with Turkey uh, in most cases. But as much as jihadis, the Russians and the Americans are also very invested in Idlib. So there are too many forces present and Turkey cannot control Idlib like it can control northern Syria. Jihan, in Libya, Turkey was among a number of international players siding with Qatar and Italy against Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Russia and France. In this case, the Turkish government seems to have extracted a, what you call a diplomatic payoff in the form of a Libyan-Turkish agreement on maritime borders, helping to shore up Ankara's claims to drilling rights in the newly discovered natural gas fields off the coast of Cyprus. What can you tell us about Mr. Erdogan and his government's adventures in Libya and his goals there? Of course, Turkey cannot take the major blame here, uh, maybe unlike uh, Syria, but Turkey was a part of the thorough militarization of the Libyan conflict. And it attempted and succeeded in using its own military forces in Libya, as well as exporting many of the Syrian jihadis who had escaped to Turkey to Libya. So there is a too complex of a relationship here. Many jihadis who could no longer survive in Syria for this or that reason had become domestic nuisances for Erdogan, and they were ultimately exported to Libya under Turkish guardianship. And as important is the link with the economic troubles in Turkey, because all of the military production I had been talking about now finds an outlet in Libya. So that's the economic reason why Turkey needs these wars and the further militarization of the region. So it's not just because of diplomacy and Turkish nationalism and imperialism that the government is doing this. It's also a way to export not just Syrian jihadis, but also an export of the economic problems of Turkey. In your article, you also mentioned the 2020 Nagorno-Arabakh war, a conflict between Azerbaijan supported by Turkey and the self-proclaimed republic in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh together with Armenia. You write this was uh, another political win for the AKP, adding that all these interventions, meaning Syria, Libya, and uh, the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, have been done on the cheap. You're referring to the cost of these interventions. And so far, all have had a successful political payoff at home. Can you elaborate also what is the ideological spin offered for these interventions, which you characterize as AKP's new imperial military adventures? There is a, a growing element of Turkish nationalism here. So many people tend to think of the AKP regime as an Islamic regime. But as I have been emphasizing, it has always been Turkish uh, nationalist. 
But after the 2015 regime change, internal regime change, this Turkish nationalism has become much more central. And one of the justifications for the Libyan adventure at home has been that Turkey is helping the Kurolu Turks, who are remnants of the Ottoman Empire's presence in Libya. And of course, this uh, Turkish nationalist card is much more important in the Nagorno-Karabakh adventure of AKP. Uh, So it's being speculated that Turkey has uh, sent, uh, again, thousands of uh, jihadis. And of course, many of these are not Turkish jihadis, but that doesn't matter. So the ideological justification is that this is a part of securing the world's Turks against their enemies. And of course, the conflicts between the Azeris and the Armenians go far back decades and mostly to the mid-1990s when uh, Armenia occupied many important Azeri towns and the AKP now markets itself, especially domestically, as taking revenge from the Armenians and winning back all of these occupied towns. And again, the economic dimension is very important in Azerbaijan and Armenia too, because the drones that are being now uh, produced as a part of Turkey's state capitalism are being widely used in the Azeri conflict. That's UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual speaking with Shahram Aghamir about his recent new Left Review article titled Turkey at the Crossroad, in which he examines the shifts the AKP regime has undergone in the context of economic turbulence, domestic unrest, and a fractured regional order, and reflects on the limits of liberal Islamic Turkish model. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. you write the confluence of the AKP's economic and geopolitical shifts has not quite added up to a coherent new model. The regime occasionally appears to be forging ahead in the direction of state capitalism, new liberalism, or even in instances, new fascism. And you add, but the regime can never take any of these to its logical conclusion. What are the reasons behind this absence of a coherent model? Yes, I think this is very important. And it is making a cold-headed analysis very, very difficult because the regime changes track sometimes every month. So it's difficult to interpret what it is doing and why it is doing that. And I refer to interest rate hikes. The regime is allegedly ideologically against high interest rates, but it does this all the time. So why is it doing this? Well, I mean, ideologically, it could have gone in a very state capitalist direction. So why doesn't it or why can't it? Well, for a sustainable state capitalism, 
you need a huge internal market. So that's how China is able to pull it off, despite being a part of the neoliberal world order. Turkey does not have that internal market. So even when it boosts its industrial production, it needs external outlets. And this is either going to be you know, European demand or when you can't really compete on European markets, then you'll have to produce drones and try them out in wars. But what, what can a medium-sized aspiring imperialist power do in these wars? Well, not much. I have said these have been wins for Turkey, but I don't want to exaggerate this because the real, real winner of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is Russia. It's not Turkey. Turkey has uh, secured some presence in the region after the 2020 conflict, but Russia has secured more presence. So a a medium-sized imperialist power cannot do much. And again, we can make sense of this through a historical comparison. In some regards, Turkey is stuck somewhere in the middle of 1920s Mussolini's Italy. So Mussolini wanted to be imperialist, but he didn't have the capacity to push much up until the rise of Hitler. So it was only after the rise of Hitler and the global making of a fascist bloc that Mussolini could become definitively fascist, even though, you know, he he was the first ideological fascist. So, I mean, we we would expect Mussolini to be more consistently fascist. That's where the name comes from. But up until the mid-1930s, Italy was still looking to liberal England as one of its partners. So we're seeing the same thing in Turkey. So as much as, you know, Russia and China expand their state capitalism and try to build an ideological bloc, Erdoganism feels emboldened to become more fascistic and more state capitalist. But China, the Chinese Communist Party is not Hitler. I mean, it's not an exact equivalent. Despite its growing power, it does not have the same ideological ambitions as Hitler. It's not as as insane as Hitler and, you know, dreaming of world domination in five years. They're much more rational people with really long-term strategies. And the Chinese Communist Party are extremely aware that they're a, a part of the neoliberal world order. So they don't want to destroy it in five years. Turkey can never find that area to expand its uh, state capitalism and imperialism freely. And that's you know one uh, very big reason, as much as the lack of a solid internal market, of these swings between lots of neoliberalism, then lots of state capitalism, some hints of fascism, some uh, small imperialist adventures, but not a coherent model. It's interesting that even in your article, you mentioned that apart from their propaganda value at home, the regime ideologues and its leaders, they really don't believe that they can win what you call imperial games and dominate the region. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Again, uh, there you go. Another another difference from interwar fascisms. I mean, they're, they're not as delusional uh, as the far rightists of the 1930s. Well, so far they haven't been. You write that for all the regime's nationalist discourse that increasingly depicts the country as part of Eurasia and the Middle East, it still pays to take a cool look at how far Turkey has actually moved away from the West. And your answer basically is not very far. 
you point out that clashes of interest with Europe occasionally boil over into verbal spats, which are then contained, and that Turkey's entrenched economic relations with the EU tell another story. Can you elaborate on what we are witnessing here? I find that very important, actually. If we just look at regime papers and opposition papers in Turkey, they both draw this picture of a very anti-Western regime. But how true is this? I'm, I'm very suspicious. So when you look at trade links, when you look at market relations, and when you look at even actual diplomacy, things are different. Yeah, there are many diplomatic moments when it looks like, oh, the bridges are burnt. Now uh, Turkey is complete in the court of Russia. Turkey will never be the same. These make the headlines, but then in a couple of months, everything cools down and European leaders start saying, oh yeah, we need Turkey. We can't do without Turkey. And these don't make the headlines. Why? Because people like speculation and scandal and drama, but most of this stuff is very non-dramatic. And Turkey is not burning its bridges with the West. So that's diplomacy. And the economic numbers give us a more solid picture. It is true that Turkey has been increasing its trade and uh, other economic links, market links, production links with non-Western powers. But the major economic partners of Turkey remain Western powers. So just uh, to give you a, a very basic idea, 56% of Turkish exports go to EU countries and uh, only 26 go to Asia. So that, that's disproportionate. And when you look at who the major partners are, they're countries like Germany, despite all of these uh, fights between Erdogan and Merkel all the time, or apparently all the time, right? As I'm saying, in between the lines, I mean, if you look at even diplomacy very carefully, that we see more than uh, fighting. And the same trade links exist with Israel. And Israel uh, keeps on being one of Turkey's strongest uh, economic partners. And this is true even of regime circles. So many of the people around Erdogan have strong trade links with Israel. President Biden and his uh, Turkish counterpart are scheduled to meet at the NATO summit on June 14. Historically, there have been strong ties between the two NATO allies. But for the past few years, Ankara and Washington have been at odds over a number of issues. These include regional policy differences, the recent U.S. recognition of the 1915 Armenian genocide by the Ottoman Empire, and Turkish acquisition of the Russian S-400 missile defense system, a move that triggered U.S. sanctions. What is your assessment of the U.S.-Turkish relations? Well, they have deep ties, deep ideological, diplomatic ties, military ties, but I wouldn't say they're going to stay the same. Even the recognition of the genocide is a a strong indication that they are already not the same. And the missile crisis cannot be underestimated, but let's not overestimate it either. So Turkey and Russia, again, they fight one day, they make peace one day. Turkey is increasingly reliant on Russia, but 
Again, the overall reliance of the military is still mostly pointing in the NATO uh, direction. Turkey is still a NATO member, and this is not just paper membership. It has a solid basis in, in the military infrastructure of the country, and this is not something that can be undone in a day. Biden is, of course, full of surprises domestically, or has been, let's say, from February to April, maybe not so much in the last 40 days. But he has been less surprising internationally. So who knows? I might go wrong about this, but I'm not expecting huge surprises from this meeting between Erdogan and Biden. And why do I think so? Because if you look at even the, the Kamala Harris visit to Latin America, it's just a rehashing of old liberal talk about Latin America with nothing different, really, in the outlook of the United States about Latin America. And when it comes to the Middle East, of course, uh, things are even more obvious. Nothing new on the Eastern Front in terms of what the United States does and says. A very recent indication of this is Biden had the chance to say something about Egypt and the dictatorship there, and he didn't. I expect him to move along predictable lines here. John, you write that despite these strong ties with the West that you mentioned, there is no going back to the golden era of the quote-unquote Turkish model. Uh, the binding ties of the Cold War have come undone, and the post-1990 momentum has faltered amid capitalist heartland stagnation. And you add, neither the EU nor the US is in a position to sustain liberal democratic capitalism in the region. This final sentence is something that I personally had been reflecting on for a long time now and had arrived at more or less a similar conclusion. What are the reasons behind your conclusion? I think there's a first a major structural world historical dimension to this, and then there are more specific reasons. But that world structural dimension is that the era of American hegemony is coming to an end. The US and the EU have been unable to offer a model to the world that's in huge contrast to this Keynesian understanding of the American dream and its uh, third world versions, which was developmentalism based on the needs and capacities of each country. So with neoliberalism, they weren't quite able to do that. I mean, that was the hope. The imitation of American neoliberalism would result in another kind of prosperity. That didn't work. And then they tried the post-Washington consensus. That didn't work. So nothing is working anymore. They don't know what to tell the world. And whatever they tell the world ends up being bland and falling flat. And that's where the opening for China and Russia come, of course, and they have been increasing their clouds in parts of Africa, in parts of the Middle East, in parts of Latin America. So the EU and the US no longer know what to tell the world. There is no united message. And of course, I'm not saying there can never be, because now that the Biden experiment domestically, as I was saying, internationally, there's nothing new. But domestically, the Biden experiment is trying to uh, come up with a 21st century counterpart of Keynesianism, a new American dream that can promise something to the rest of the world. 
But in its very initial stages, we can't know if the U.S. is going to pull uh, something off. So that's a world historical and very general dimension of why uh, America can't do it anymore. And of course, there's also a military dimension to this. And we have seen this amply in the Middle East in the last 20 years. America can invade, it can topple uh, whatever regime it doesn't like, but it cannot build a new regime. Because of you know, time restrictions, I, I don't want to go into why this is the case. But ever since the 1960s, 1970s or so, this was becoming clear. But in the last 20 years, it has become very clear. America cannot build new regimes anymore. And this has military reasons and this has some economic reasons as well. And now more specific to Turkey's condition and maybe more specific to the EU, there's also the European expansion dimension. So it turned out very clearly that Turkey was the boundary of the European dream. So EU's universalism encountered a very solid cultural frontier in Turkey. So the early years of EU optimism was that any secular country, whether of Islamic or other background, can become a part of the EU. And this turned out not to be the case. And we went into some reasons of this in our last conversation. And the increasing salience of the far right in European countries is, of course, a very big part of this. So if the EU can't even liberalize Turkey, how can it even dream of liberalizing Egypt and Libya and Syria? So culturally, militarily, economically, the Western model has exhausted itself, at least in its neoliberal incarnation. Maybe in 10 years, there will be another Western model, but we don't know that yet. And finally, in your assessment, even though Erdoganism does not represent a coherent alternative, Mr. Erdogan himself remains a formidable electoral force. You write, he has not been mummified by his 18 years in office. Though older now and tired, he has not lost his popular touch. He's energized by power and many of his supporters like what he does. When you try to look at Turkey's political landscape in the foreseeable future, what do some of the more plausible scenarios look like? There's many dimensions to this, of course. One being is something I did not cover in the article because it had not happened yet. The internal dissolution of this organized crime ring, which has been on for several weeks, since it's like a very murky subject, I don't want to say too much on it, but the organized crime gangs that serve as solid links between the Erdoganist regimes and the fascist movement in Turkey, they are becoming undone. And we don't know where that will go. So that, that's a huge area of uncertainty for the regime. Erdogan himself is not in trouble right now, but everybody around him has been implicated in these last few weeks. Including a former prime minister of his. Yes, exactly. And including the second man of the regime right now, Süleyman Soylu. So something big is happening in Turkey. And where might this lead? Where I think the most likely scenario is if Erdoganism falls, 
the center-right and center-left parties, the existing ones, they want to replicate the 2000s. So they have no vision beyond the AKP. They want the first version of the AKP, which is, of course, a horrible lack of imagination. The world has changed, and who can do the AKP better than the AKP? Why should we trust them to pull a better Erdoganism than Erdogan himself? This is unrealistic, unpalatable, and unimaginative. But that's the vision of the existing three center-right parties and the center-left party. So if Erdoganism goes right now in an early election, let's say in 2022, or in the scheduled elections 2023, the most likely scenario is a center-left, center-right coalition that is going to try to imitate the structurally impossible first version of the AKP. And as I was pointing out, world neoliberalism is dying. You can't do this anymore. But they are going to try to do it. If and when they try to do it, many things can happen. Of course, the, the fascist poll might get very strong in reaction to this. Now they're lo- losing face, I mean, because of organized crime and all that. But they can come back as a reaction to more neoliberalism. And of course, the other thing that can happen is that a true non-neoliberal left might emerge in Turkey, especially if parts of the American political landscape and European landscape also go in this direction. Would that be centered around the HDP party? That is possible, but uh, that has limits of its own. I, I can't come up with a remedy here, of mm-hmm. course. But one serious limit of the HDP has been uh, the perception that it is a Kurdish party. So the HDP has been trying to say, and we talked about this, that it it is not a Kurdish party. It's a trans-ethnic party with a lot of sensitivity on the Kurdish issue. But most of the electorate does not buy this. And why and when can that change? I, I think that's another huge topic in itself. But because of that reason, I'm not certain that the HDP can play this role. It might, but there are other attempts within the Turkish left to move beyond the current impasse. But at the same time, I don't see that happening successfully if they do not integrate the Kurdish movement. So there's a double impasse here. You need a trans-ethnic party, but I still can't imagine that successfully turning into a mass movement without the participation of the Kurdish movement. Jihan Twal is a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley. He is the author of Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism and the Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. His new book is called Caring for the Poor, Islamic and Christian Benevolence in a Liberal World. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows 
on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.